Hello, and welcome to day one of a miserable year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to read you the whole of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. There's 365 chapters, so it's going to take me all year. Once a week, once every seven episodes, there'll be a book club discussion with my co-host, Alison Edwards, and maybe one or two other special guests. I'm going to be reading from Isabel F. Hapgood's translation from 1887. It's unabridged, and it comes in at over half a million words, so I'm going to get started shortly. But before I do, I'm sure you'll want to know that you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A Miserable Year. Please do. You can check out our website at amiserableyear.com. I hope by now you're sensing the theme. And also that you can email praise or any questions or comments to amiserableyear at gmail.com. Before we get to the story, though, there's Victor Hugo's preface to get out of the way. While people live in hells on earth, created artificially by laws. While customs complicate and worsen the bitter blows of fate. While the three main problems of the century remain unsolved. While men are still ground down through work and worklessness. While women are still forced in desperate circumstances into prostitution. While children's futures wither in the darkness. While isolation in society is possible. In short, to put it plainly while ignorance and poverty remain on earth. Stories like Les Miserables may not be entirely without their use. Les Miserables Volume 1, Fontaine Book the First, A Just Man Chapter 1, Monseigneur Miriel In 1815, Monseigneur Charles-François Bienvenu Miriel was Bishop of Dean. He was an old man of about 75 years of age. He had occupied the See of Dean since 1806. Although this detail has no connection whatever with the real substance of what we're about to relate, it will not be superfluous if, merely for the sake of exactness in all points, to mention here the various rumours and remarks which have been in circulation about him from the very moment when he arrived in the diocese. True or false, that which is said of men often occupies as important a place in their lives, and above all in their destinies, as that which they do. Monsignor Muriel was the son of a councillor of the Parliament of Aix, hence he belonged to the nobility of the bar. It was said that his father, destining him to be the heir of his own post, had married him at a very early age, eighteen or twenty, in accordance with a custom which is rather widely prevalent in parliamentary families. In spite of this marriage, however, it was said that Charles Muriel created a great deal of talk. He was well-formed, though rather short in stature, elegant, graceful, intelligent. The whole of the first portion of his life had been devoted to the world, and to gallantry. The revolution came. Events succeeded each other with precipitation. The parliamentary families, decimated, pursued, hunted down, were dispersed. Monsignor Charles Muriel emigrated to Italy at the very beginning of the revolution. There his wife died of a malady of the chest from which she had long suffered. He had no children. What took place next in the fate of Monsignor Muriel? 
the ruin of the French society of the olden days, the fall of his own family, the tragic spectacles of 93, which were, perhaps, even more alarming to the emigrants who viewed them from a distance, with the magnifying powers of terror. Did these ideas cause the ideas of renunciation and solitude to germinate in him? Was he, in the midst of these distractions, these affections which absorbed his life, suddenly smitten with one of those mysterious and terrible blows which sometimes overwhelm, by striking to his heart, a man whom public catastrophes would not shake by striking at his existence and his fortune? No one could have told. All that was known was that when he returned from Italy, he was a priest. In 1804, Monsignor Muriel was the curé of Brignol. He was already advanced in years and lived in a very retired manner. At the epoch of the coronation, some petty affair connected with his curacy just what is not precisely known, took him to Paris. Among other powerful persons to whom he went to solicit aid from his parishioners was Monseigneur le Cardinal Fesch. One day, when the emperor had come to visit his uncle, the worthy curé who was waiting in the anteroom found himself present when his majesty passed. Napoleon, on finding himself observed with a certain curiosity by this old man, turned round and said abruptly, Who is this good man who is staring at me? Sire, said Monseigneur Muriel, you are looking at a good man, and I at a great man. Each of us can profit by it. That very evening, the emperor asked the cardinal the name of the curé, and some time afterwards Monseigneur Muriel was utterly astonished to learn he had been appointed Bishop of Dean. What truth was there, after all, in the stories which were invented as to the early portion of Monseigneur Muriel's life? No one knew. Very few families had been acquainted with the Muriel family before the revolution. Monsignor Muriel had to undergo the fate of every newcomer in Little Town, where there are so many mouths which talk, and very few heads which think. He was obliged to undergo it although he was a bishop, and because he was a bishop. But after all, the rumours with which his name was connected were rumours only. Noise. Sayings. Words. Less than words, palabre, as the energetic language of the South expresses it. However that may be, after nine years of episcopal power and of residence in Dean, all the stories and subjects of conversation which engross petty towns and petty people at the outset had fallen into profound oblivion. No one would have dared to mention them. No one would have dared to recall them. Monsignor Muriel had arrived at Dean, accompanied by an elderly spinster, Mademoiselle Baptistine, who was his sister, and ten years his junior. Their only domestic was a female servant of the same age as Mademoiselle Baptistine, and named Madame Megloire, who, after having been the servant of Monseigneur le Curé, now assumed the double title of maid to Mademoiselle and housekeeper to Monseigneur. Mademoiselle Baptistine was a long, pale, thin, gentle creature. She realised the ideal expressed by the word respectable, for it seems that a woman must needs be a mother in order to be venerable. She had never been pretty. Her whole life, which had been nothing but a succession of holy deeds, had finally conferred upon her a sort of pallor and transparency, and as she advanced in years she had acquired what may be called the beauty of goodness. What had been leanness in her youth had become transparency in her maturity, and this diaphaneity allowed the angel to be seen. 
She was a soul rather than a virgin. Her person seemed made of a shadow. There was hardly sufficient body to provide for sex. A little matter enclosing a light. Large eyes forever drooping. A mere pretext for a soul's remaining on the earth. Madame Maigloire was a little, fat, white old woman, corpulent and bustling, always out of breath, in the first place because of her activity, and in the next because of her asthma. On his arrival, Monseigneur Muriel was installed in the Episcopal Palace with the honours required by the imperial decrees, which class a bishop immediately after a major general. The mayor and the president paid the first call on him, and he, in turn, paid the first call on the general and the prefect. The installation over, the town waited to see its bishop at work.